You're listening to The Central Cast, recorded each week in front of a live audience in Glendale, California. Well, good morning. How are you guys this morning? Good. It's an honor to get to be with you and to share my story. I've actually been in the area all week. I spoke at Caltech University on Monday and was in San Diego last week. And so I've been looking forward to being with you all and uh, I'm excited to get to share my story with you this morning. Uh, So this will be not the typical sermon of a Sunday morning, uh, but rather I'm just going to share the story that I've been on and the journey I've taken with you guys because I believe that uh, stories are what really, really influences hearts and minds. It's how we relate to one another. It's how we bond with one another. It's how we learn and how we grow. And it's what Jesus did. He told stories. And so I'm going to share my story with you this morning. But I'd like to actually open up and uh, start with the words of the ethos that come from my home church in Denver, because it's been a big part of my own journey and my, uh, my story as I've gone through my coming out process. And it's something that I continue to carry with me. This is how we start every, every service um, in, our, in our hometown. Married, divorced, and single here. It's one family that mingles here. Conservative or liberal here, we've all got to give a little here. Big or small here, there is room for us all here. Doubt or believe here, we all can receive here. LGBTQ and straight here, there is no hate here. Woman and man here, everyone can here. Whatever your race here, for all of us grace here. It's in the imitation of the ridiculous love that Almighty God has for each of us and all of us that we choose to live in love without labels. Amen. Well, if you would have asked me 10 years ago what I would be doing today, this would not have been it. Um, I would have probably told you that I expected to be married, which I am. And I probably would have told you that I expected to be in ministry, which I am. But it would not have looked like this. I grew up in a very conservative Christian home. My dad started working at Focus on the Family when I was three years old. And for those of you that are not familiar, Focus on the Family was founded by James Dobson in the 80s and um, was then, it actually was here in the LA area for a few years, which is when we moved and started working in the very early stages. And then they moved to Colorado Springs in 1991. And my family then transported with them, and that's where they made their headquarters at home. And Focus on the Family is primarily known for teaching family values, for um, parenting, for promoting healthy marriages, Um, and unfortunately, they're also known as one of the most anti-LGBTQ organizations still in existence today. Um, But that was all that I knew growing up. Uh, My dad started working there when I was three, and he still works there to this day. So that was all that I knew. I grew up very much cocooned in this conservative Christian bubble that kept me kind of protected from the outside world. My parents tried to kind of um, keep me sheltered, and they had very good intentions, and they did um, very well in raising us. I was homeschooled K through 12. 
I was involved, people would ask me, well, do you feel socially deprived? And, do you, and of course I said no, because I was very socially active. I was always involved in, in groups and in swimming and all these different activities. Um, but I didn't realize how much I actually was being sheltered from the outside world uh, and how ill-equipped I was to actually walk in and to um, be able to experience and function as a, as a healthy human being. Uh, I was really never exposed to people of diversity of any kind, uh, whether that was racial or uh, religious or disability or certainly LGBTQ. Everybody looked and believed and thought exactly like I did. So I was never really challenged to think for myself or to defend my beliefs or to think outside the box. Um, I just was kind of spoon-fed this theology and took it wholeheartedly without ever questioning it or giving it a second thought. And so when I was growing up, that was just comfortable for me. That was expected. That was what I knew. And I felt kind of this obligation to protect my family's name. My dad works in a pretty prominent position at Focus. And so that, that burden and that weight started to kind of rest on me as I got older. I didn't feel it so much in my elementary years. You know, in those early years, I was listening to Adventures in Odyssey and acting in Adventures in Odyssey, and uh, it was kind of cool to be the cool kid. Um, but then as I got into my early teens, that pressure started to weigh on me a little more, and I started to feel kind of this, this responsibility to uphold this family reputation and this kind of family facade. People would look at me and say, oh, your family just seems so perfect. And of course, it wasn't perfect. Um, my family did many things very well, um, but there was also other parts that were really challenging and really difficult. And yet, I w learned from a very young age to kind of stuff my emotions and hide what I was really feeling and kind of portray this um, put-together face to the outside world. And so I had this responsibility to my family. But when I came out as gay, that responsibility changed. And a few years ago, I was sitting across uh, at the table from Paula Stone Williams, who's a national transgender advocate. Uh, she's also from Denver, so I don't know if um, some of you know her, but she travels and speaks quite a bit as well. And I sat across from her and I told her my story and I said, I'm thinking of going public with this, what do you think? And um, if you know Paula, she's quite intense and she sat there and kind of interrogated me and asked me these questions and um, just tried to get a feel for my story and where I was headed. And when she got the information she was looking for, she just sat across the table from me and looked me dead in the eye and said, Amber, embedded in your identity is a responsibility to be a voice for change. And that's how I knew it was God and that it was time to tell my story because it just resonated in my spirit for days and days and days. Uh, it was like God speaking through her to me. And so I started writing my story. And that was a journey all in itself to unpack um, a lifetime of experiences and emotions. But I did it primarily for two audiences. I did it for the LGBTQ person who is wrestling to come out of a conservative faith community because there are so many of them. Um, I get emails on a daily basis now from people who are coming from a conservative Christian primarily evangelical background, but not necessarily, um, who are wrestling in isolation in the closet and are desperate for a beacon of hope. And so the goal was that by sharing my story, I would be able to give them this kind of beacon of hope um, that would help them navigate their own coming up process. And part of that is to help reduce the risk of suicide rates because the suicide rates are higher for LGBT people from conservative faith communities. 
the Trevor Project says that if you have an LGBT youth, um, they are already four times more likely to attempt suicide than their straight peer. But if they are rejected by their family, they are eight times more likely to attempt suicide, not from the straight peer, but from the peer that's not rejected by their family. So you compare the person, the LGBTQ person that's been rejected by their family to the straight peer, they're 32 times more likely to attempt suicide. So those rates are high and they need to change. And so that was part of why I've shared my story because I was so close to suicide myself. Uh, the second reason was to help family and friends and pastors and teachers have a story that they can relate to as well, that they can hopefully find themselves within this story, even if they're not LGBTQ themselves, but be able to read and identify with different themes in the story, whether that's focus on the family or adventures in Odyssey or homeschooling or purity culture, and be able to identify not as a, this political hot debate that we often see in the news, but make it a real story that they can relate to. And if they can find themselves within this story, maybe we can create some conversations for change of how to better include people in, in, uh, in our churches and in our experiences. I grew up in the heart of the purity culture, which said that true love waits and you save sex for marriage. And so that was um, a big part of my upbringing, really from the very beginning. That was always um, expected to me, expected of me, um, that marriage was, of course, um, between a man and a woman. That was never even questioned. Um, but that you would also save sex for marriage. And so, at the age of 13, I signed a purity covenant. And on the dotted line, I had all my friends and family come for this big, like, coming-of-age ceremony that took me into the beginning of womanhood. And in front of all my family and friends, signed this covenant that I would save sex for marriage. And my dad put this purity ring on my finger that had a heart and a key and a cross that symbolized that God would hold the key to my heart until I someday gave it to my husband. And I was to wear that, that ring on my wedding finger until the day I got married and then exchange it for my wedding vow and my wedding ring. And that was really, that was expected of me, but I also never questioned it because it was just, um, just what you did. That was what you did to honor God. It was what you did to please God. And I wanted to please God with my heart and my life. I had a very passionate heart for God from a very young age. And that was something I never questioned. I wanted to please God. I wanted to be a good role model. So I never even thought about it or questioned it. But I didn't realize until I got older how much being a part of the purity culture um, made it difficult to discern my sexual orientation earlier on in life. Uh, because I was homeschooled and primarily in Christian circles and primarily in uh, female circles, I really didn't have a lot of male friends growing up. They were primarily female friends, which did not work out in my parents' favor in the long run. <laughs> but um, so I really didn't have a lot of male friends growing up, and that really hindered me from being able to discover my sexual orientation earlier on in life, because I never dated at all. I, excuse me, I never had the experience of dating or of being in public school and talking with my friends and having these experiences and shared commonality. I never got those experiences. And so I really walked blindly just thinking, if I just wait and I please God with my life and I follow his will, someday my knight in shining armor is going to come running down the path on a white horse and we will fall in love and get married and all will be well. But that's not what happened. 
Um, well, it did, but not like that. <laughs> um, so it wasn't until in my early 20s when I fell in love with my female roommate that I started to really question my sexual orientation. And really, I knew that I was different. I always wrestled with something. I could never quite pinpoint it. I never quite knew what it was. I never quite knew why, but I just always wrestled. I never quite fit in. And part of that was because of the educational track I was on. I, I fast-tracked through school, so I graduated high school at 16. I had my college degree at 18 which kind of put me at the oddball out no matter where I was because I was too young to be able to um, really fit in with the college crowd, but that I didn't really fit in with high school either because I was taking college courses. So I kind of felt like I was just always this misfit that never quite fit anywhere. Um, but there was something more. There was something deeper, and I just didn't know what it was. I didn't have the experience. I didn't have the um, exposure or the language to put with it. But I wrestled a lot with depression and anxiety and just this inner turmoil that I could never quite pinpoint. So when I fell in love with my female roommate in my early 20s, um, I did not know what to do. It was just a slap upside the head. It was so unexpected and so foreign. And I just, I felt so divided because it caught me so off guard. I had never had any experience. And you certainly weren't supposed to, you know, if anything, it was supposed to be with a man, not a woman. And I felt so divided inside and so at war and at conflict. And so I actually want to read a excerpt that comes from the prologue of the book, uh, the prologue of the book, because it describes how I was feeling in that moment, where you just, you've got this faith that you've been um, raised with, and that I had loved God with all my heart. I wanted to please God more than anything, um, and yet this new thing was rising up inside of me, and I didn't know what to do with it, and I didn't know how to resolve it, and I didn't know where it was coming from, and so. This um, excerpt from the beginning of the prologue really uh, describes how I was feeling in that moment. That realization caused me to feel disjointed, like I didn't fit in anywhere. It was as if half of me belonged in one world and half of me in another. Both worlds coexisted in my heart, yet refused to cohabitate in real life. I stood at a crossroads. I refused to lie or be a hypocrite. But I knew that if my secret were found out in church, I would no longer be allowed to serve in ministry. Torn and conflicted, I engaged in a mental war day and night, a war I couldn't escape because it raged inside of me. This internal war was so brutal, it produced external scars. Self-injury was the only way I knew to survive. Eventually, I began to wonder if the struggle was worth it. I wondered if it would be better to be dead. And when you're taught to hate this group of people, you know, we would never say that, but you love them from a distance. You don't actually associate with anybody of the LGBT community, and um, it's clearly implied that they are uh, far from God's will and that they are, um, their souls are in jeopardy of going to hell and they have, uh, they're an abomination and all the, all the typical things that you hear is what I was taught growing up. So when you're taught to hate that group of people, but then that group of people becomes you, then you start to hate yourself. And so I turned that turmoil inward and started on this downward spiral of struggling with depression and anxiety, which led to self-loathing and self-hatred and self-injury, and eventually to suicidal ideations. Because I didn't know what to do. These were two worlds that could not coexist. 
And so I got to the point where I had to look it in the face. It was my greatest fear, but I had to face it head on because I knew that if I didn't, it was going to be the thing that killed me. And so I started on this journey. And I really didn't know how to start or where. There really wasn't much available as far as resources go like there are today. We've got a number of excellent resources available now that people have written in the last few years to help people reconcile their theology and their faith with their sexuality. But when I was wrestling with coming out, there wasn't much available. And so I didn't really even know where to start. And I wanted to really find the truth. I wanted to know what it really said. I didn't want to water down the scripture to justify my way of life, like people told me I was doing. I really wanted to know. And I was just as terrified that God would say it was okay to be gay as to hear that God was not okay with me being gay because I knew that either way my life was going to drastically change. And so I started out on this journey. And for me, that looks like... It happened in several different ways. One thing was that I put myself in counseling because I felt like it was important to start to unpack this lifetime of emotions because emotions were never really expressed in our household in a healthy way, at least not the full spectrum of emotion. Uh, emotions like happy and excited and blessed were all acceptable emotions in our household. <laughs> oh, you're familiar with that one, yes. We, everything is to be a blessing to others. Uh, but emotions of disappointment or anger or sadness were not so well received. And so I learned from a very young age to suppress what I felt and wear a happy smile and cover up what was really going on inside. But then by the time I hit my teen years, I had so many years of emotion stuffed inside that it started to come out in other ways. And so certainly that built throughout, um, throughout my teens and compacted and compounded and got worse. And so I had been in counseling a number of times, but um, usually with a Christian therapist. You know, the, the, having any kind of struggle is already taboo enough because that means you don't have enough faith. But then to go to counseling, you know, there's kind of a hierarchy. So if you hit one of these things somewhere, you're eventually going to go to counseling because you want to resolve that so that you can kind of put your mask back on and have it all together. And so I, being gay was certainly one of those taboo things. You just go to counseling because that's, you, you, that's the level of hierarchy is you've gotten up there. So, so you're kind of maxing out at the top. There's not much farther you can go. Um, so I decided to put myself in counseling and I made sure that I found a licensed counselor who was not just a Christian therapist, but would support my belief system and my journey of faith, but also support me being able to try and navigate um, where I stood with my sexual orientation. And it was one of the most helpful things I had ever done because I, get, I had a safe space to be able to come and start unpacking a lifetime of emotions that I really didn't even know how to label. Um, they were so jumbled up inside of me that I didn't even know how to express emotion in a healthy way. I didn't even know how to communicate what I was really feeling. Um, I was just so overwhelmed by it. So to be able to start kind of naming and labeling emotions uh, was so very, very helpful for me. I also began to date and try and have some experience with dating because I felt like, well, I'm either going to find it in dating or I'm going to find it in counseling. And if I don't find it in one, I'll find it in the other. And somehow we'll figure this road out together. And so I did some dating. And then I tried to also figure out 
where I stood, um, what I really believed about what the Bible said on this issue of same-sex marriage. Because so much of my upbringing had been just spoon-fed to me, and I just accepted everything that was taught as these authorities from God that had it all figured out, and never really questioned or dug deep for myself. So I did my best to, to dig deep, to try and figure out what I believed for myself. And I kind of had to silence the voices around me for a time because I knew everybody was going to have their own opinion. And I really wanted to hear God for myself. And so I did my best to kind of um, use the resources that were available to figure out the theology piece of what the Bible really said. And I was able to do that um, to a pretty good degree, but I also needed not only just kind of this mental shift, but I also needed a heart shift to be able to see that it was really possible for me to, to be able to live a happy, fulfilling life as a gay Christian woman. And I didn't know that I could. That was something that was so foreign to me. Um, it was navigating uncharted waters for sure. And so I finally kind of reached this ends rope where I just didn't know what else to do. And I sat down at my computer one day and just Googled um, gay Christian churches. And as many of you probably have, because that's all you know to do. And so I sat down and did that. And the first thing that popped up was this church in Denver, Colorado. And I was still living in Colorado Springs at the time, but I decided to take a risk and email this pastor. And I just poured my heart out to him, and I told him the journey I had been on, and I told him what had happened, and I didn't really expect to get a response. I grew up in a 14,000-person megachurch where you email the pastor, you never hear anything, you know? And if you do, it goes to this secretary, who goes to this secretary, who then gives you some scripted response, or, oh, we don't want to deal with that, so we're just going to pass it off. Um, so I didn't think I'd ever hear anything back. But I kid you not, two hours went by before I got the most heartfelt response from this pastor himself. And he said, please come. Please come visit. I will set somebody up to meet with you. I will set somebody up to take you to lunch and show you around. And he did. And so I drove from Colorado Springs to Denver. And I didn't know what I was going to find when I got there. Because I had never seen another gay Christian person before. Um, I, I didn't know what to expect when I walked through those doors. But when I walked through them, I was surrounded by people like me. There were no rainbow flags in the foyers, or people making out, or drag queens hanging out. Like, they were just normal people. And my heart just felt so at home as I sat and heard the words of these ethos read for the first time. And I just sat and cried because I finally felt safe for the first time. I finally felt like I belonged, like I could bring all of me, and I didn't have to divide me in half. And I didn't have to compartmentalize who I was. And that day, so much changed for me because I found people that not only loved God, but were so in love with their same-sex partner or spouse and had been together for 20, 25, 30 years. And they could talk about them both in the same context without any conflict in between. And it was just the most beautiful thing that I had ever seen. And so a lot changed for me that day. And I actually ended up uh, commuting back and forth from Colorado Springs to Denver every Sunday for six months, um, trying to build some support system, trying to build some help, and some people around me that could embrace me. Um, and, and for me, that really gave me the heart shift that I needed to be able to embrace who I was, um, not only theologically, but also just to be able to see that I could live a happy, fulfilling life. And so once I kind of had all the pieces that lined up for me, 
I knew I was going to have to come out to my family. And there was just no, like, we were so close. You know, some people have, they live on one coast and their family lives on the other coast and they can get away with it because um, they only see each other once a year and it's not a big deal. That would never work for my family. We all lived within like a mile of each other and we saw each other all the time and we talked every day and we were just super close on every level. And so I knew I was gonna have to tell them the truth. Um, it was exhausting to try and live this double life where you had to filter what you said all the time and wonder who was going to find out and um, were you going to slip up and say something before you were ready. And, and I was very methodical in the way I did it, you know, as far as coming out to my family. Um, and I had, you know, a lot of things set in place to make sure that they heard it from me and not from somebody else. Um, but I knew that I was going to have to sit them down and tell them. And I didn't know what their reaction was going to be. Um, and I, I knew they wouldn't embrace me. I knew it wasn't going to be like, yay, that's great. We're so happy for you. Um, but I, I didn't think that it would be um, the extreme of them totally cutting me out either. I thought it would be kind of somewhere in the middle. I knew it could cost me everything, um, but I wasn't prepared for the fact that it actually would. And I brought my family in one day, and I had them all sit down, and I told them the journey that I'd been on. And I told them the journey that I had been on with God because I knew that was going to be their biggest fear was where had I taken this with God and what was my relationship with God like. So I tried hard to tell them about the relationship that I had and the journey that I had taken with God. But I don't think they heard a word that I said. They glazed over like deer in the headlights and I think they knew what was coming um, as I ramped up to, to telling them that I was gay. And once I did, those words just kind of hung in the air as I waited for the response. And it was by far the most vulnerable that I've ever felt in my life. And my dad just looked at me and he said, I have nothing to say to you right now. And he got up and walked out the door. And I didn't hear from them for three weeks, which in my family was like forever because we talked every day. And when I did, I had hoped that they would have some um, time to kind of process and, and try to understand where I was coming from. But instead, it was much worse. They said, uh, we feel like you've died. And they compared me to murderers and pedophiles and bestiality and said, how dare you do this to our family? You're so selfish to do what makes you happy and not think about how this would impact our family. Of course, that was all I had thought about for months leading up to it, you know, was how this was going to impact our family and, and change the dynamics that we had. But in their minds, I had turned my back on God and everything they'd ever taught me. And they actually said, I'd rather you completely turn your back on God and be gay than be gay and pretend that everything between you and God is okay. And so the second um, excerpt that I want to read to you comes from the end of that conversation. Uh, which is one of the toughest conversations that we, that we had. Um, and this comes as I'm getting ready to leave. Finally, after I'd been thoroughly reprimanded and ostracized, the conversation wrapped up. But as I went to leave, there was one final jab to my heart that made all of this very real. As I went to walk out the door, my dad asked for the key to their house back. My childhood home that I'd grown up in from the age of seven, the door that had always been open to me to come by whenever I needed, was now locked, and I was left out in the cold. I was now an outsider 
no longer welcome as part of the family. He said he no longer trusted me to have open access to their home. Baffled, I removed the key from my keychain and handed it to him. I think he tried to soften the blow by saying, I love you, before closing the door, but I don't remember for sure. All I could feel was the hurt, the pain, and the rejection from those I cared about the most. I never expected my parents to be accepting or approve of the fact that I was gay, but for the first time in my adult life, I took the risk of completely trusting in their love for me as parents, yet was met with rejection. In my hour of greatest need, my family abandoned me. Arriving home, I opened my journal and in utter heartbreak, wrote 10 of the most painful words of my life. My worst fear has come true. I've become an orphan. And that was one of the hardest days. I'd like to say that it got better and easier over time, um, but that was just the beginning of it. Um, in, in the following months, there were times where they slowly shunned me with their words and times that they did it with passive-aggressive behavior. But they slowly just kept pushing me further and further to the outside, telling me um, that I no longer belonged. And I really didn't know what I was going to do because I was losing everything. My whole life was just falling apart. And I, I actually ended up picking up and moving to Denver because it was the only way I knew to survive. Um, I f had lived in Colorado Springs all my life. Everybody knew me, everybody knew my family. I felt like I was always walking on eggshells, looking over my shoulder. And so I picked up and moved. And it was by far the best decision I could have made. Um, it was hard because I, I, I lost uh, not only my family, but all of my extended family cut me off. I lost the majority of my friends. Um, I left the home church I'd known of for 14 years, and I moved away from the only hometown that I'd ever known. And so I literally was having to start again from nothing. And yet it was um, such a, a healing place to be at the same time because I was able to really start again and start um, building supportive community around me for the first time, start to be able to live authentically for the first time. So even as I went through this interesting dynamic of, you know, we had a couple years of, of a lot of tension, um, tension where my parents kept hoping I would change, um, hoping that things would get better, and, and so there was a lot of tension there. And so it, I was simultaneously losing everything and yet feeling more peace and more joy than I'd ever felt. So it was this really interesting combination. I was single when I came out um, and then uh, met Clara, who is now my wife, um, about a year later. Um, and she's not here today. This is one of the only events that she's not been able to be at, but uh, she had to get back to work. Um, but we've been married about four years now. And so during the whole time when we were dating and, and getting to know one another, and then we got engaged, this whole time was this tension with my family of hoping that I was gonna come around. They'd even say, you know, the door is always open if you ever wanna come back to Jesus and come back to us. And that's what they were hoping for. But when I then got married, uh, I think that hope for them was, was gone and they just cut me off completely. And so I haven't had any contact with them in about four years. And um, while that's been incredibly hard, and I continue to grieve that loss, obviously, um, I still wouldn't trade 
where I am today for anything. Um, I feel more at peace. I feel more at home in my own skin. Uh, I feel more free than I've ever felt. Um, the people I've met, uh, and nobody can replace your family, but the people that I've met have brought so much life and um, such richness and depth to me. It's, it's the people I've longed to meet all of my life. Um, I always felt like I was living in this Barbie doll world where nobody was real with each other, and I finally got to meet people that were real and authentic, and it's just been so rich um, and beautiful. And so that's kind of where I've um, been able to springboard then and share my story with others, because being in community with people, um, and as we share stories, we can help one another along each of our journeys. And it's not easy, it's not to say that all the pain is gone and everything is happy and, you know, there, there's still pain there. Um, but I love the life that my wife and I are creating together. I love the journey that we're on. Um, I love the traditions that we're starting to um, build into our own family. Um, holidays have always been hard for me, but this, this past Christmas felt like the first time that we kind of were anchored in our own family and it just felt really good and it felt home uh, without this emptiness there. And so it takes time. It takes time to build all that up. Um, but it's just, it's been a beautiful journey even when it's painful. And um, I wouldn't trade it. I really wouldn't, even though it's cost me so much. Um, it, it's just been um, so rewarding in so many ways. It's brought my faith so much deeper in so many ways. Um, the diversity that I've seen in God, the depth that I've seen in God, the love that I've seen in God. Uh, so much of my previous world felt wrapped up in this box of certainty, and everything was right or wrong, black and white. I had all the answers, um, but what I realized was that if you have all the answers, what do you need faith for? And where I live now is so much more dependent on faith, so much more dependent on um, who God really is and what he really says, and that's where I try to live out of it. It used to scare me to kind of live in this place of doubt and wondering and not having all the answers, uh, but now I find it very comforting and very freeing to be able to say, I don't know all the answers and that's okay, um, but that I'm growing and I'm living um, out of that faith on a daily basis. I'd like to um, ask you to close your eyes, if you don't mind. I know this is um, quite a journey. I know the topics are hard. I know some of it can be triggering for some people. Um, but just take a deep breath. And let's let God meet us where we're at. I'm going to share with you one of my favorite quotes of all time by Marianne Williamson. And as I do, just let it sink into your soul. If it helps, you can open up your hands. Our deepest fear is not that we are inadequate. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. It is our light, not our darkness, that most frightens us. We ask ourselves, who am I to be brilliant, gorgeous, talented, fabulous? Actually, who are you not to be? You are a child of God. Your playing small does not serve the world. There's nothing enlightened about shrinking back so that other people won't feel insecure around you. We are all meant to shine, as children do. We were born to make manifest the glory of God that is within us. It's not just in some of us, it's in everyone. 
And as we let our own light shine, we unconsciously give other people permission to do the same. As we are liberated from our own fear, our presence automatically liberates others. As we move into a time of communion, um, I want you to reflect on God's love for you. This love that says that you are always enough. You don't have to measure up. You don't have to prove anything. God loves you right where you are. All you have to do is open up to him. On the night that Jesus shared a meal with his friends, he said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Remember this as a token of my love. And the same with the cup, his love poured out for you. As we receive communion today, I invite you to receive his love exactly as you are, exactly who you are, exactly where you are into your hearts. Each episode of the Central Cast is followed by an interactive discussion. If you'd like to participate in recordings, or if you're interested in exploring progressive faith and theology for a postmodern context, check out centralavenuechurch.org. Here's this week's unedited discussion. You can ask me pretty much anything. I'm a pretty open book, so feel free to be the first one. Sure. (laughs) So when people ask you to justify same-sex relationships, scripture and theologically, do you even answer that question anymore? And if so, how do you do do it? So when I'm asked to justify same-sex relationships, do I? (laughs) The answer is not usually. Um, There's so many great resources to point people towards at this point. And for me, I don't... If they're hell-bent on what they believe already, nothing I say is going to change that. Um, So there's no use in getting a a debate over scripture. Um, I don't see any use for that. However, if they're really wanting to search, um, they need to do that work for themselves, in my opinion. They need to go read, they need to go study, they need to go figure it out. Because it's pretty, um, I mean, there's different books will give you different levels of academic research, but there's quite a bit on that research. And so it's something I feel like they need to go kind of figure out for themselves, research, and kind of um, work through in their own personal relationship with God. So I generally don't go into a scriptural debate with people who ask me. I will usually point them to the resources available. Oh. Somewhere over here? Yes. Um, so I want to, uh, this is more of a, I don't know how involved you still are with uh, keeping up with <laughs> the culture of like focus on the family and stuff because I I remember personally when when I was younger as part of an evangelical culture I was I led like book studies about like lust and, and <laughs> stuff like that mm-hmm. so you know Joshua Harris yep. type of the whole yep. purity culture thing um, so I guess my question is because this was a attention back then and Focus on the family started to really confuse me because um, 
I remember we read, I, I was part of a uh, male, what, what I'm sure evangelical dudes will remember, the accountability groups, mm -hmm. where it's like, all right, how many times you masturbate this week? Yep. Um, yep. Make sure it's fewer than last week. Yep. And, uh, <laughs> go from there. Uh, so, anyways, the, the thing, uh, there was this book I remember going through called Not Even a Hint by Joshua Harris. But I remember around the same time, Focus on the Family apparently came out as being okay with masturbation. And, and it was like, I was like, oh, well, that seems really weird of them to do, especially with being, um, you know, anti-LGBT and everything. Yeah. Uh, so I was kind of wondering, twofold, part of that question too is do you, do you know where they actually stand on that are you familiar with that and also are they actively um, are they actively pursuing people LGBT people to uh, get involved with conversion therapy because um, I know a lot of that started to kind of crumble a lot of those programs started to crumble a few years ago I just wondered if you knew the current state of that that's a good question um, I can't say that I know where Focus on the Family stands on masturbation. <laughs> I haven't done any research on that, um, but I should. That'd be interesting to know, because really it, it all ties together, right? I mean, masturbation and pornography and same-sex, they, they lump it all together as this whole big, huge, sinful genre. Um, so it would be interesting to see if they, you know, have kind of moved stance. I don't even know, like, I know within Focus on the Family, I think, you know, Jim Daly's president now. Um, James Dobson is still associated with, um, with focus in many people's minds, but he's actually not, um, there's been a tie that's been cut, so he's actually not affiliated with focus anymore. Um, and I think Jim Daly is actually a little more open to having some of the conversations. People like Justin Lee and Matthew Vines have actually gone in and have conversations with him. But the feedback I hear is that he is more responsive than the board, and the board is not wanting to move or budge. Um, and so I think as far as conversion therapy, I know Exodus you know, International has been shut down, which was the primary conversion therapy um, organization. But I think that if you get in and you do the research, they still um, approve of conversion therapy, unfortunately, um, which is so unfortunate on so many levels. But, um, but I believe that they do still, I don't know that they would like actively promote it, but they do still, you know, like even when your child comes out, they talk about, well, you have to grieve this because this is not what you expected for your child. And they make it such a negative thing um, as opposed to a positive thing that you could be celebrated. Um, so I think there's still a lot of um, negativity and harm coming out of it, um, unfortunately. Uh, in fact, somebody had just contacted me recently about um, something to do with conversion therapy in Colorado Springs, and there was a big article um, on it, and they were, I think, going to reach out for a comment from me for the Gazette because they um, were seeing how, how much it was still impacting. You know, Focus on the Family's got a pretty strong hold in Colorado Springs and around the world, and so I think they still um, have a lot of influence when it comes to things like conversion therapy and the voice on that. Yeah. Yeah, Emily. Yeah. Um, was that something that your family tried to encourage, or it seems like you kind of like, I don't know if this was intentional, but it seems like you kind of like steeled up, like getting ready to be like, nope, this is it. <laughs> yeah, I kind of did, and they kind of knew that. Um, so I didn't really give them the option. They said, you know, they, they, when I told them I was 
I was pretty firm in my decision because I knew that if I showed any room for wavering, they were going to try and take advantage of that. And so they they saw that and they knew that and they're like, well, we wish you would have come to us sooner because then we could have helped you. And even if you had still ended up the same, at least we would have known we could have done everything we could to make you change, you know. Um, and they, they even said, you know, we would love to have taken you to Love One Out, which was the, you know, conversion therapy at Focus. And, and we would love to have done this stuff with you. Um, so I know that they wanted to, but I just really didn't give them any space for that. Uh, and we tried to get into this place where we could have this conversation or, or um, agree to disagree. And, and in their mind, they couldn't even do that. They couldn't even agree to disagree because in their mind, that was the same thing as condoning. And it took me a long time to realize that, so they, are, they already believe that I'm going to hell, that I've put my soul in jeopardy of going to hell um, because I've turned my back on God in their minds. Um, but I also, it took me a while to figure out that they think that by agreeing to disagree and therefore condoning, that they are then putting their souls in jeopardy of going to hell just by associating with me, who is active in that lifestyle. So that was, um, it took me a while to figure out why they wouldn't get in this kind of common space of let's just agree to disagree and still have a family and, you know, um, and, and do life together. But it finally dawned on me that that was why. And I think that's really what they believe in their minds, is that it, it then puts their soul at jeopardy of going to hell. So, yes? I assume that uh, your faith as present is not just everything you believed when you were 16, except for it's okay to gay. <laughs> uh, but I'm, I'm curious about how uh, you used that last story about you know, your parents believing that you're going to hell and they will go to hell to talk to you. How you work with God uh, has changed through this process, whether you've had to totally rebuild your faith, or whether it's been more of sort of tweaking the elements of things So how has my faith kind of evolved through the process? Um, it's definitely gone through a deconstruction because um, I think there's been a lot of theology that I was taught that um, that I would no longer um, say that I believe. Um, but it's also gone through, you know, that I'm we're reconstructing it, and I, I find that I think that will be a lifelong journey. It's not something that's just going to happen overnight. Thirty years of you know, bad theology, and not necessarily that all of it was bad, but, you know, some of these views of that, you know, God is an angry God, or God is to be feared, or God is to be, um, God hates you because you're gay, or the, those kind of things, those can take a long time to undo. And so I think um, I'm trying to take the good pieces with me as I move forward, but it's definitely been trying to, like, kind of sift through, okay, what, what do I still hold on to and value, and what do I let go of, and how do I kind of deconstruct that and reconstruct it into something something that, in reality, I think is a better reflection of who Christ really is, as opposed to a religion um, more of, of who I believe Jesus to be. And that, I think, will continue for life. And I'm okay with that, because that means I'm constantly learning, I'm constantly growing, I'm constantly um, building up um, who I am and what I believe. But I think it's a lifelong journey. So. Yes, in the back, and then I'll, the gentleman right in front. Um, my, my Shunning the the throwing them out in some of our young. 
totally, you're not an entity to them anymore. How do they justify that in their faith? Yeah. Um, so I do have one younger brother. He's about three and a half years younger than I am. And I actually came out to him the night before I came out to my parents. We had a conversation over dinner and he said, you know, I, I don't understand and I'm sure I'll have some questions, but it certainly isn't something I would disown you over. Um, so he seemed okay at first. And then he came again the next day when I told my parents. And I don't know what happened when they all walked out that day, but I just never heard from him again. And so there was, you know, some tension um, in there where we, my family and I were trying to figure things out. And um, we did have a conversation at one point in the middle of that. Um, but then, you know, there was a lot of silence. It went from my family and I talking all the time to just very sparingly ever having a conversation. And when you did, it was very tense and awkward. Um, but then about two years ago, out of the blue, he called me up on my birthday. And um, I just, I hadn't heard from him in a long time. And he just called me up and um, said, I, I just want to re have a relationship with my sister. And uh, he had just had his first baby girl. I didn't even know they were pregnant. She was already two months old. Um, and said, I want a relationship with my sister. I'd like to meet Clara. And so I felt like, okay, well, maybe he's trying, you know, to kind of bridge the gap. So I sent him a baby gift. And the holidays came, and I sent him a Christmas gift. Never heard from him again and never have. So I think he feels caught in the middle. He's very, very close with my dad. And I don't think that he wants to jeopardize that. Um, I think he just, I think he feels stuck. So, um, so that's on the, on the sibling point. On the, how do they justify that? You know, they say a lot that God's love is unconditional. But you wonder if they really believe it. I think so much of what my parents believe is based on a theology of fear. And I don't think they even realize it. Um, there's so much fear at the root of everything. Fear of what other people are going to think. Fear of reputation. Fear of going to hell. Fear of disappointment. Fear of sin. Fear. There's just so much fear. And, um, and I, like I said, I think they're completely oblivious to that. Um, but what, that was one of the hardest things for me to grapple with was to realize that, um, my parents' love actually came with strings attached. They loved me if I did A, B, and C, but if I did this, then they didn't love me anymore. And so that was really, that was a hard thing for me to grapple with. So I think they compartmentalize a lot, and that's how they somehow justify it, is they compartmentalize what they believe. And, uh, um, and so much with my family is based on appearances and reputation, unfortunately. And so what, what this looks like to other people, what it looks like to the family, what it looks like for my dad's job. Um, he, you know, he would even tell me, um, I'm so embarrassed by you because of all the fans that follow my work and, and to have a daughter, it's just embarrassing to me. So I think so much, unfortunately for them, is based on appearances. Yes, right in front here. How much of our conversation was rooted in fear of hell? Most of it. <laughs> I think, yeah, I think the majority of it comes out of a fear of, of, of hell, fear of what this does to their, and what it does to their belief system. 
because you put a crack in their belief system and suddenly they think everything is going to crumble and then they have nothing left and that is terrifying. And I, I understand that because I was there myself where I had to face, okay, if, I, if I'm wrong about this, what else am I wrong about? Um, and that's, that's an overwhelming thing to have to confront. Um, so I think the majority of, of it is based in some kind of fear, whether it's fear of going to hell, fear of being wrong. Um, my parents have a hard time, you know, swallowing pride and admitting that they're wrong. And I think that's something they may never be able to do, you know, um, based on, and, and somebody asked me, do I think after my dad retires in a year or two, if that will change? And I don't know. I don't know if that will continue to still influence the way that they think and feel and do life. Because they really believe that they are right. There's no, there's no room for error. It is black and white. Um, and so I don't know if once he retires, if that will make a difference or not. I really, I really don't know. Um, yeah, Emily. I'm just gonna, this is part comment, part question, but because um, I hadn't really had an opportunity to read your book yet or, or anything, but um, one of the things that I, if, correct me if I'm wrong, is um, Kintorn is your married name. Right? Yes, Kintorn is so, my married name. But you've never actually like identified who you're. No, I have not. Right, and that's. I mean, do you, I feel like that's kind of commendable in terms of that you're not trying to embarrass or shame that you know him for what he does um i mean is there is that rooted in kind of leaving that door open for the future or so the question is um have i named my father and i have not um that's been intentional um cantorn is my married name so um people can figure it out if they want to it's not hard you know um but i have never exposed or announced my dad's name or his position at Focus. Um, he does still work there, and part of that, I think, because um, somebody was like, well, aren't you still then protecting your family because you're not exposing who they are? But it's not, it's more than that. It's about taking the high road. It's about being the bigger person. Um, you know, my publishers even really, they really wanted me to just nail focus to the wall and throw my parents under the bus and just like, you know, book sales, yes. Um, and I said, I can't do that. I said, if I do that and I come across bitter or like I've got an ax to grind, or, nobody's going to listen to me and I'm going to repel the very people who need to hear this message the most. And so I've been very careful to walk this fine line of being very honest about my experiences and how bad theology has influenced me and my family, because in some ways they're victims of bad theology themselves, right? Um, so not that that justifies their, their behaviors, but, um, but it does explain some of them. And so I've been careful to be honest about the way that that's influenced me and impacted our family. But I also try to do it in a way that's respectful and compassionate so that people can, um, who may not otherwise pick up the book, would pick it up and read it and identify with these themes and then hopefully be drawn in to the story and realize these are real people. These are real families that are being torn apart, not held together. Um, you know, I never dreamed that my dad's position at Focus would be the thing that tore my family apart rather than bonded us together. And, um, but that's what happened. And so, uh, if they can identify with it being a real person, a real, um, then hopefully they can rethink the way that they do things. And so I've, so it's been intentional that I haven't said that for that reason, is to hopefully um, impact people because of that. Mm -hmm.